All right, go ahead and just follow along with me as I read. I'm going to bounce around a little bit, um, but the bulk of it will be in chapter 3. But starting in chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. All right, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Let's pray. Dear God, we turn to your word and we want to sit under it. We want your word to be over us and instruct us. And we don't want to go away forgetting what your word said to us. And so I pray that by your spirit you would Allow your word to penetrate deeply this morning. By the power of your spirit, help us to lay aside the distractions. Help us to lay aside our notifications. Help us to lay aside our Mondays and just be in your presence, listening to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. All right, a little bit about the book of Proverbs. Who wrote it? Well, we find out right away in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And there are two further references to Solomon in chapters 10 and 25. But there are other references to other authors in the book especially toward the end in chapters 25, 30, and 31. And so it's most appropriate to consider this book as an anthology, as a compilation of Proverbs, mostly written indeed by Solomon, but also including other authors. And so how is it laid out? What's the structure of this book? Well, if you've been reading with us, you know, so far it's been a narrative. So far it's been a a discourse But if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, you know that that's not 
the whole thing, you know that eventually you'll start to hit one proverb after another proverb after another proverb. And so how is it laid out? What is the structure? And honestly, it's, it's, it's a tough structure. It's, it's a challenging structure to understand. Uh, so firstly, we have a preamble in chapter 1 where it's sort of an, an introduction to the introduction. And then nine whole chapters go by of extended discourse of introducing wisdom. And wisdom as personified as a woman. Lady Wisdom. And then in chapters 10 through 29, we see basically an unorganized swath of Proverbs. And this is what you think of when you think of Proverbs. Short, pithy statements that are wise and they pack a punch. They they ring true. They click. And we're, we're used to Proverbs. We have modern Proverbs. In fact, yesterday I said a modern proverb to my father-in-law. I said, you know what they say, don't count your chickens until they hatch. Right? That is a proverb. It clicks. It's helpful. And so the book of Proverbs, for the majority of the book, are these short sentences that pack a punch. They're infused with wisdom. And then the last two chapters of Proverbs are attributed to two authors who aren't Solomon. And so these chapters form the conclusion of the book. And so what is the purpose of Proverbs? Well, Proverbs, situated between the books of Job and Psalms, but before the book of Ecclesiastes. Did I just lie? No, I didn't. Okay. These are wisdom literature. And so Proverbs is an element, a a major part of the wisdom literature that's found in the Hebrew Bible. And Proverbs is unique in that it presents a fairly black and white picture of the world. There are typically two choices. You have a choice between lady wisdom and Dame folly, a choice between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the way of the diligent or the way of the sluggard, the way of the wise or the way of the fool. And so Proverbs presents the world in simple terms. There's a fork in the road. Are you going to choose the wise way? Or the foolish way. And so it presents the world as it, as it typically should work. It, it presents the world in generalities. For the most part, this is true. If you go the way of wisdom, you'll succeed. You'll find success. You, you'll find happiness. And if you go the way of foolishness, you'll fail. You'll suffer. You'll have pain. Now, if you've read other books in the wisdom literature canon like Job, like the Psalms, you'll know that that's not always how things work, right? If you, 
you can easily turn backwards to Job where the righteous suffer. Where the person who is wise, who does make the right decisions, who takes the right fork in the road, that doesn't always lead to happiness. Or you can turn forward to Ecclesiastes where the wicked prosper. Where the person who takes the foolish fork in the road ends up having that long life with wealth. And so the book of Proverbs is unique in that it presents a black and white picture of what's true in general. And so it's worth reading, reflecting on, meditating all on its own. So for the next four weeks, we get to survey some of the major themes of the book of Proverbs. You know, we're not going to cover everything, but we're going to cover some of the, the overarching themes of what it's trying to get across. But that's why I'm excited to be able to read the whole thing together, because we'll be able to cover ground that we won't be able to cover on Sundays. And so our series this month is called Constant Fork in the Road. Constant Fork in the Road. So Proverbs presents life as a journey or a way or a path. You know, we talk about life in those terms all the time. We say to one another, you know, life is a journey. And Proverbs confirms that. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. And then in verse 18, it says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. And so, Proverbs presents life as a journey, as a path, as a way that we're walking, and that along this journey we are constantly presented with forks in the road. Whether big or little, bad or good, every day we're presented with what choice are you going to make? Which way are you going to take? And that's where wisdom comes in. Wisdom is what helps you know which fork, which path at that fork to take. You know, we're used to connecting wisdom with Proverbs, you know, and rightly so. The word wisdom is used almost 40 times in the book. And aside from the word wisdom, other countless synonyms like knowledge, understanding, insight, instruction, discretion, and the list just goes on and on. Now, the first nine chapters of the book provide an introduction to wisdom. And like I said before, it personifies it in the form of a woman. Lady wisdom calls out in the street, it says. So it, it presents an introduction to wisdom, which means our need for wisdom, our, its value for our lives, but also that it's available. That wisdom is not hiding from you. Wisdom is calling out to you. Wisdom is inviting you to join her. And so Proverbs goes. And so these chapters are, are easier to read straight through than the rest of the book. Because the rest of the book is, is saying after saying after saying. 
But these nine chapters, they provide us with a lens through which to read those sayings. And straight away, in chapter 1, we see that the bedrock of wisdom, which is used as a synonym for knowledge here, chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so the bedrock of wisdom and knowledge is this concept called the fear of the Lord. And it's repeated again over 16 times in the book. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And this introductory nine chapters is sandwiched with another mention of the fear of the Lord in chapter 9, verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, this, the reason why I want to camp here today, and we're going to come back to this over the course of the whole month, is that we start and end with that, the fear of the Lord. This concept, it helps us to read Proverbs correctly. You know, a lot of us uh, over the years have, have turned to Proverbs in different times, and we almost treat it like fortune cookies. You know, like, find a, find a saying, see if it resonates, and then if it doesn't, whatever. But if it does, like, act on it for today, right? We treat Proverbs like that. We treat it as information that might be helpful, that might help us in our day-to-day lives. And that, that might be true. That might be helpful. But whether you are a Christian or not this morning, we can all admit that there are times in our lives when we need guidance, when we're confused, when we're at a crossroads and we don't know which way to go. Whoever you are, we can all admit we have times like that. And so what these chapters show us in displaying and recommending the fear of the Lord is that at those moments, we do not just need information. We need relationships. Wisdom, according to Proverbs, is not about more information. Wisdom is about relationship. But not just relationships with people, although next week we're going to find that Proverbs constantly recommends community. And so we're going to hit that next week. But wisdom is first and foremost about a relationship with God. Why? Because if God is indeed the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer of all things, then he knows best. It's it's that simple. He is the very source of wisdom. It says as much in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, it says, If you seek it, wisdom, like silver, and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will what? 
understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Why? For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He's the very source. But the question remains, why fear? Are we supposed to be afraid of God? Is that what the Proverbs author is recommending to us? Is our relationship with God, this this thing that is at the root and foundation of wisdom, is that to be one of cowering in fear? Well, yes and no. No, to, to fear God in biblical terms is not necessarily to be afraid of him. To fear God is to reckon with the fact that he is the center of the universe. Not you. And no one else either. Just him. Fear is Fear is dependent on the object that is being feared. So, personally, I'm scared of bees. I fear bees because they sting me and it hurts. And anything that those bees sting on me swells up like a balloon. I fear bees because of what they do to me. I I have a, a reverential awe of bees. I reckon with what they do. And we, we treat humans the same way. We, sometimes we fear other people, specific people, because historically what they've done to us, how they've hurt us. But the cool thing is, with God, with this God, it's different. His character is perfect. He remains always and absolutely the sovereign and center of the universe, period. But simultaneously, he also desires intimacy with you, nearness with you, relationship with you. And so you could call the fear of God just respecting who he is. Not only that he's the center of the universe, not only that he calls the shots, not only that he sits in judgment over all people from all places, all times, and countries, and nations, not only that, we respect who he is. He wants to know us. And so to fear God, you could also call it something like affectionate reverence. You're just relating to him as he needs and should be related to. Awe? Absolutely. But also, affection. And so, according to Proverbs, it is, it is when we have this fear of God that we have wisdom to navigate the complexities of life. And don't get me wrong, Proverbs is not all in the, up in the air, in the sky, theoretical. Proverbs is practical, but so is relationship with God. So is the fear of God. It's practical. It helps you navigate those little forks in the road that will come today. But we start 
with the fear of God. Why? Because if we don't fear God, we're going to fear someone else. We're going to fear ourselves. We're going to elevate ourselves. We're going to elevate, elevate others to a place where they need not and should not be. And so it's when we center God in our lives above ourselves, above others, that we are able to make good and healthy decisions for living. It's practical. You know, he created all of us, as in all of you, heart, soul, mind, body, all of you. He wants all of you to thrive, not just your spiritual life, your physical life, not just your, your spiritual relationship with him, your physical, your, your horizontal relationships with others. He has a good plan for all of you, all of yourself. And so in chapter 3, what we get is a snapshot of what this fear of the Lord leads to. What kind of a life does it lead to? What does it look like? When someone centers God in their lives. And chapter 3 gives us a great picture of that. And in verses 1 through 4, we, we have the, the first step, which is to fear the Lord leads to embodying the character of God. Look at chapter 3 again. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And so in verses 1 and 2, we find the value of this teaching. Nineteen times in these first nine chapters, the author here says, My son. Remember, my son, oh, my sons, my son. It's, it's as if a father who is an artisan, who's a, who's a craftsman, is teaching his son, his apprentice, his way. He's saying, my son, listen, my son, this is valuable to you. And so in order to read Proverbs correctly, we are all to put ourselves in the place of this son to listen closely, to value what's being said, to take it to heart because we're going to have to put it to use. It's worth considering. And it's clear and it says it right there why it's worth it. It says keep my commandments. Why? Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And so here we see that it not only leads to most likely, in gen general terms, a longer life, but it also leads to peace. So right away we have this black and white picture of the world. If we take to heart God's commands, if we take to heart his words, what does it say? You'll live a long time. <laughs> That's cool. And that's oftentimes, maybe even most of the time, true. But what about when it's not? What about when choosing God leads to persecution, suffering, 
a shorter life. Well, we can turn to Job for that. (laughs) But we can also, we'll see it at the very end here. But also, it doesn't just promise physical long life. It promises peace. It promises peace in life. It asks the question, without God, how do you have peace? Without God standing as judge over all the wickedness and injustice of the world, how do you sleep at night? Without God redeeming you from your own wickedness and brokenness, how do you sleep at night? Centering God leads to a life of peace. But then in verses 3 and 4, we see that the character of God is on display. Now, it's meaningful that Proverbs uses the personal name of God in calling for the fear of God. The word is Yahweh. In verse 7, fear the Lord, fear Yahweh. In all of the mentions of the fear of the Lord, this is his personal name. And what are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to hyperlink back to when God self-revealed to Moses. Exodus 34, what did he say? How did he describe himself as God? He said this, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the same words here. When the writer says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Now, steadfast love, that's the word hesed in Hebrew. It constitutes the most common word in the Old Testament for God's radical love. This is his definitive love. It's steadfast. It's loyal. It's faithful. It's unshifting and never-ending. This is how he describes his love. It's not capricious. It's not wishy-washy. It's not up and down. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. And faithfulness is just that. Faithfulness. Another word you could use is firmness or truth even. God is as sure as it gets. And so the path of life, it provides many unknowns But the times you may not know where you're going or even who you are, you can always know whose you are. It's because of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. The father says to the son, don't forget this. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Don't forget it. Put it into practice. Keep it at the forefront of your mind. And so here, the first thing we see is the fear of God leads to a desire to embody the character of that God. Now, this is because we've experienced it. It's those who have experienced the steadfast love and faithfulness of God that can embody it, that can do it, that can wear it for the world. This is a love that transforms. 
And Ephesians gets this point across in Ephesians 4, and it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And it says, Therefore, be imitators of God. Why? As beloved children, it says. And it says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The whole point of this is that we are children imitating our Father. That we experience this steadfast love, this faithfulness, and then we want to do it. We want to imitate it. The fear of God. You see how it doesn't lead to to shame? It doesn't lead to cowering. It doesn't lead to being afraid of God. It leads to reckoning with his character and wanting to perform his character, to embody his character, to put on his character because we're imitating him. It leads us to experience it and embody it to others. And then look again, it leads to a blessing. In verse 4 it says, So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Awesome. It turns out that other people appreciate it when you reflect the character of God. He has a good character, and when you reflect it to others, it's a fragrant, it's a fragrance. As it said of Christ's sacrifice, it's a fragrant offering. And so, that's the first thing we see, that the fear of God leads to embodying his character. What does it lead to next? Verses 5 through 8, we see it leads to trust and humility before God. Look at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And so we see that as you draw closer to God, as you know his character, you start to realize something. You don't know that much. You don't know that much. When you get to know God more, you also get to know yourself more, relatively speaking. You're just a weak human being, turns out. And in the words of the psalmist, Psalm 103, you're just dust. But you know, the cool part is, this doesn't lead to shame. Because we're not comparing ourselves to other people. When you compare yourself to others, those that are better than you, those that are worse than you, you experience either shame and despair or pride and and self-sufficiency, self-reliance. That's the byproduct of comparison to other people. When you draw near to God and you compare yourself to him, there's no contest, obviously, but you do recognize how little you know. And so it doesn't lead to shame. It leads because of this this 
knowledge and experience of God's steadfast love and faithfulness towards you. It doesn't lead to shame. It leads to trust and humility. The fear of God leads to trust and humility. Now, trust and humility, these are, these are beautiful things. And they go hand in hand. Humility involves letting go of your own self-sufficiency. You can't do it. That's humility. It's not self-deprecation. It's just letting go of your own self-sufficiency. What is trust then? Trust involves receiving the sufficiency of another. And so that's why they go hand in hand. In humility, we recognize we can't do it, and so we open our hands. And then we are then able to trust in the sufficiency of somebody else. And clearly here, God is labeled as sufficient. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then what will happen? He will make straight your paths. He will do it, it says. He is able, he is sufficient to do it. To do what you cannot do. To do what you were not designed to do. Which is to lead and guide and direct your own life. And so we see that when we trust him, we won't be disappointed. And as we walk with him throughout our lives, we learn that lesson over and over until we can't explain it away anymore. That's why I love meeting people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s who've been walking with God for decades. They have all the proof they need of God's faithfulness of his steadfast love. In those seasons where the path seems dark, seems twisted, seems foggy, seems scary, he is able to make it straight. And by the way, that doesn't mean make it easy. Straight doesn't mean easy. Straight just means clear, well lit by his word, directed by him, but Psalm 23 says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for, in, for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The straight path leads through that valley of the shadow of death. But we don't fear because he's with us. That's the good news. The good news is not the path is easy. The good news is that the path is accompanied And so we see also in verse 7 that part of this trust and humility is in regards to evil. It says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, it says. The Bible is pretty clear that human beings, ourselves included, are flawed. Are, are sinful creatures that by nature enjoy and pursue evil. I can attest to that. We like things we shouldn't. We don't like things we should. 
And part of the prescription here, part of the prescription of Proverbs is to trust God even with that part of us. It says, be not wise in your own eyes. That reminds me of another verse somewhere. All the way back in Genesis 3, when Eve saw the forbidden fruit, what did it say? It said, it was delightful to the eyes and was to be desired to make one wise. In that moment, at the direction of the the deceitful serpent, Eve was wise in her own eyes and saw what she wanted and then she took it. You know, we've been doing that ever since. We've been wise in our own eyes reaching out, taking things that we desire that look good to us, but in God's eyes are unwise, unhelpful, and will destroy us. And so, part of the fear of God is to believe God on this. It says, fear the Lord, and then also what that means and leads to is to turn away from evil. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. But we don't just believe God for the no's, right? You know, we don't just believe God for the don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. We also believe him for the yeses. And that's exactly what it leads to in verse 8. It says, it will be healing to your flesh. Literally, that says healing to your navel, your belly button. This goes to your core. It will be healing to your flesh, refreshment, drink, nourishment to your bones, it says. And so we're we're not just, God isn't just throwing all these no's at us. Although we do need to believe him in what he says on what is right, what is wrong, what is evil, what is good. But believing God leads to healing. It leads to refreshment, humbling ourselves before God, trusting God's opinion over our own does not cause us harm. It causes the reverse. It causes holistic flourishment body, mind, and soul. You know, sometimes a criticism that Christians get when they deny themselves of of desires that go deep down is you're harming yourself. Obeying God is never harmful to yourself. It's always refreshing. It's always healing. It might hurt. True. But it's always for your flourishing. Why? Because of who he is. Because of his steadfast love. Because of his faithfulness. Because of the hope that we have in him. Obeying God is always worth it. And so we see that the fear of God leads to embodying his character. It it leads to trust and humility. And then these last few verses make it clear that drawing near to God, humbling ourselves before him can lead to both success and failure. 
It can lead to, to both, you know, material flourishing, but also difficulty and hard times. And so fearing God also leads to a proper response to both. Fearing God leads to honoring God in both success and failure. Look at verses 9 through 12. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And then it turns a corner here. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so honoring God with success, honoring God with good times, honoring God with our money, you know, all these things are simply an outworking of centering God in our lives. You know, if, if God is the center of your life, if you fear him above yourself and above anyone else, then you'll worship him with all of yourself. There ain't nothing that'll be off limits to him. This includes your money. This includes your budget. But it moves so far beyond that, too. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Everything in your life. Productivity. Time. You know, time is a big one. Time is a difficult one. You know, we 21st century American Christians are so overburdened with schedules, with busyness. It reminds me of, of my high school Spanish teacher. She, at one point, was praying, and she, she's this, like, diehard, charismatic believer. And at what point she felt God leading her not just to, to give, you know, a percentage or a 10% of her, of her money, but to give 10% of her time to him. And what that meant for her was she would tithe, which means tenth, you know, which is sort of the, the Old Testament description of, of the proportion of which we give to God, she would tithe her time every day. That meant, you know, there's 24 hours in a day. She would tithe 2.4 hours a day to God. <laughs> she would wake up at like 3 a.m. and like just pray for two hours. Wow. You know, that level of devotion <laughs> probably won't work for most of us, but it gets us thinking that if God is at the center of our lives, does he get that first portion of our lives? You know, it, it's a challenge. But the beautiful thing is that when you set aside time for him, even if it's 10 minutes, whether it's morning or evening, doesn't matter, to simply invest in your relationship with him. Not trying to get something done, not trying to check a box, but just to spend time with him, whether it's in prayer, or in his word, in silence, before him. It's not God who needs it. No, he isn't waiting for it so he can check the box. 
what we find that it's definitely God who wants it and desires it, but it's us who need it. And then over time, you'll realize that you actually also want it. That all of a sudden, this this time that seems so unproductive, all of a sudden becomes the most productive 10 minutes of your day. Because it helps you reorient, recalibrate, recenter, reprioritize what's important in your life. And over time, we'll realize that we want it because we'll want him for him. You know, not just for the good gifts that he gives. And we see a beautiful paradox in verse 10. And it, and it seems like another promise, another Whoa, Proverbs, like you're, you're promising a lot here. It says, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be full and bursting with wine. Anybody have vats of wine? <laughs> we see this beautiful paradox, you know, that, that honoring God with all of our material, physical, relational, temporal possessions leads to What? Weirdly, it, it leads to an increase. And, you know, I'm not a prosperity preacher, so I'm not going to call this a promise. But what I will call it is a wonderful description of God's economy. That he owns, like it says, the cattle on a thousand hills. And so if he calls you to be generous with your money, generous with your time, does he not also have the capacity to bless that generosity in ways that you can't even fathom? That he'll blow your mind with what walking with him and acting in his character and in his name, what that does for you and how much it blesses you. And one of the reasons I know it's not a promise is the next section. You know, we've seen the instruction to honor God with our success, but then the instruction turns a little more sober. And this is where we're going to end today, that that we not only honor God when things are going well, when we're feeling good, when we're successful, we also honor God when things are rough. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. Now, this, this section on discipline is perhaps the most important reason why understanding the nature of your relationship with God is so important. This is one of the reasons why Proverbs isn't just a, a list of fortunes. It's not just sayings that you should pick out of the sky and take for yourself. It needs to be in the context of this relationship here. Trials, suffering, painful seasons in life, failures, whatever you want to call it. These are the things that challenge us to our core. They reveal a lot. But primarily they reveal what we believe what we not just believe with our heads, but what, but what we functionally believe with our hearts and our lives, what is the purpose of life? What's the purpose of life? 
Now, if, if you believe your purpose is to, say, be a mother, but it turns out you struggle with infertility, what does that do to your sense of purpose and meaning? If you believe you're supposed to be a surgeon, but you lose your fine motor skills in an accident, what does that do to your sense of purpose and meaning? Suffering, pain, trials, difficulties, these things force us to reckon with what we most truly believe about life and its purpose. Now, the author of Hebrews grabbed these two verses and offered a commentary on them. So if you want, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to end here. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3, it says, Consider him, Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then it quotes Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then he offers, or he or she offers the commentary. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of repentance, or sorry, fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those last two verses paint the picture of the purpose of discipline. What is the purpose of discipline? And by the way, God uses circumstances in your life to discipline you, to train you, to help you, to form you, to change you. So what is that? What is the purpose of that? It's for our good that we might share his holiness, which means that we might become more like him. Our father this is why we can honor God in both success and failure, in both good times and bad, in abundance and in suffering. This is his character. He's so good and so powerful that he can and will use everything, every little thing, every big thing, every good thing, every difficult thing to accomplish what he wants to in us. 
That's amazing. That is powerful. That is him. That is steadfast love. That is faithfulness. And so all roads, all roads in Proverbs lead back to this relationship. It says there, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, if you're a woman today, you need to put yourself in those shoes. A father, his firstborn son who receives everything. This is all of us get to count ourselves as that status. All roads lead back to this relationship. And so it turns out that the purpose of life, the purpose of living is not happiness. It's not success. It's not material wealth. It's not adventure. It's not family or even doing good. The purpose of life as described by Proverbs is to know God intimately. Why? Because that's why he created us. So that we might know him, enjoy him forever. This is why we can't read Proverbs like fortunes. We have to read Proverbs with this God in the forefront. With his character as what we long to embody. With humility and trust. Knowing that we are always and forever desperately needy for him knowing that he will use both our ups and our downs for his good purposes. We start and we end this journey of life with the fear of God. And so as we move into our time of response, as we move into a time of reflection, a time of worship, a time of singing, a time of prayer, consider this question. Who is the main character of your life? If it's you, and I'll put my, you know, name in the ring, it's me a lot of times. If it's you, ask yourself if that is leading to a life of flourishing and of peace. So let's spend some time in prayer right now. Lord, we we come to you. We recognize that it turns out you are the center of the universe. But thank you that there is good news and that the center of the universe, the main character of the story desires to know us. The main character of the story desires to be in our story, desires to walk with us on our journey. Lord, help us to rightly consider your importance that we would center you, not ourselves. But help us also to to correctly consider your goodness. To center the right perception of you. To, To remember your steadfast love and faithfulness. That that is the core of our experience of you. The real you. Help us to believe you. As we respond, there's going to be many aspects to our response, but firstly, we, you can spend time in just personal confession. You know, confessing that you've been the center of your life again, today, and then just saying, God, I want you at the center of my life. 
You're better at this. And then we can come to the table. We can remember that the foundation of this relationship, the reason that we can draw near to a fearsome God in our state is because of Jesus, because of the blood he shed, because of the body he had that was broken for us. We can come, it says, boldly into the throne room and approach this center of the universe, God, with all of ourselves, and he wants all of us. It's all because of what Jesus did. And so we can come to the table and remember that and thank him for that, proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes again. We can spend time singing and worshiping and just proclaiming the goodness, the beauty, the provision, the 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 flourishing life that God has provided for us through Christ in singing. And then if you are heavy laden this morning, if, if you are burdened, if you're carrying difficulties, carrying circumstances, tired, exhausted, then you're welcome to come forward for prayer. Come forward to one of these two pews up front, and McGee or Cindy would love to to lay hands on you, to pray for you, to hear your burdens, to proclaim God's love over you. If you want to give of your finances, if you're part of this church, you're welcome to do that. There's a box down here. But let's just enter a time where we're listening to him, where we're, we're longing for him, where we're open to him, And guess what? He provides all that we need to walk with him, to bind his steadfast love and faithfulness in the person of the Holy Spirit with us. So we can spend time receiving the Holy Spirit, listening, and just praising God together as a family. Let's do that.